can be seated. This morning we are continuing a series that we began last week entitled Rich Toward God, rooted in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34. And I should say again, the reason we're dealing, this is a section where Jesus deals with money and possessions, a theme that we often don't like to talk about, a theme that's pretty private in our lives. But as I mentioned last week, this is a central part of the ministry of Jesus. He spoke and taught about this a lot. And if he did that in a largely subsistence farming culture, then surely he would do that in 21st century America, where we have affluence and wealth unlike any other time in history. And so we want to tackle this because it's important. It's important to our hearts, important to our lives of discipleship and faithfulness in Jesus. If you're here and you're investigating Jesus, then these things come downstream of a decision to repent and believe and to walk with him in faith and find life in him. And then he begins to show us what this looks like. So that's why we're, we're focused on this. And just a brief review from last week. We, um, to be rich toward God, which is our goal, means that we are to use the, all that God has entrusted to us in accordance with his will, including our money and our possessions. To live rich toward God is to regularly ask the question, God, what do you want me to do with your stuff? The stuff that you've called me to steward. What do you want me to do with what you've given to me? And then it's to act accordingly. And though scripture endorses several legitimate responses to this question, we saw last week that saving, for example, is a legitimate response to what to do with at least some of the stuff that God entrusts to us, but not hoarding, and we tried to explore the fine line between those things. The balance of the biblical answer to this question, what do you want me to do with your stuff? is to give it or to share it. It's to be generous. That is to say that the things that God has entrusted to you and to me are not meant exclusively for our own benefit or to meet our own needs alone. Rather, God intends that these things he's entrusted to us are meant for the enrichment and benefit of others, particularly those in need. And and I just want to say, does this surprise us? When we think about God as God has revealed himself to us in his son Jesus and just how deeply generous God is. This is at the heart and nature of his nature is to give. So is it any wonder then when it comes to thinking about how we're to live in relation to our possessions and our money that the dominant chord struck in the biblical word from this God is I want you to be like me. I want you to be generous and to give. That's the aim for us. We want to be rich toward God. So the rich man in that little explosive parable that we studied last week that Jesus told, he stores up treasure for himself and God calls him a fool. He ignores the needs of others. He ignores the heart and design of God and he ignores the perspective of eternity. And what fuels the temptation to store up for ourselves is this pervasive and pernicious lie that somehow life is bound up with what we possess. That greater life comes from greater possessions. And Jesus exposes that lie directly in verse 15 of Luke 12. Take care, he says, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
what Jesus is teaching us to guard your heart, to be on guard in your soul so that you don't fall prey again to somehow believing that ever-present lie that you can get life out of the stuff that you have and therefore you want to acquire more. Don't fall prey to that lie. So that's what we looked at last week. That's the temptation that keeps us from living rich toward God. So today we're going to turn to verses 22 to 31. And um, I often say this, this is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Just to clarify that again, this is such a, a beautiful text and a challenging one. But as we turn to this text, we deal with what I'm going to call the barrier. If last week we looked at the temptation, that you can get life out of possessions, that's the temptation, then, then this is looking at the barrier to a life that is rich toward God. And it's a barrier I think we're all pretty familiar with. Anxiety over having enough. Being anxious over having enough. And as we look at this together this morning, we're going to arrive at one of the massive fault lines in the life of faith, what I would call a kind of spiritual continental divide um, as we think about this. And it's this. It's pretty simple. Am I a cosmic orphan who must fend for myself? Or am I a child of the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills who knows my needs, and who has promised to provide for me. That question is really at the heart of the life of faith. And then in answering that question, do I live accordingly? Which I think is where Jesus pushes us a little bit in this text. Uh, Several years ago, a friend of mine told me a story about being on a backpacking trip in Glacier National Park in Montana. They were on a seven-day trip. He and two of his buddies were out there. And in this was in the middle of the trip. And this particular day, it was an incredibly rainy day. It was just pouring rain. And one of his friends was having some blister issues and just couldn't move along. And there's always a competition in Glacier for campsites. And so my friend told his two buddies, look, I'll go on ahead, find the campsite, get it, you know, get it cared for, and start dinner. And you guys can make it at your own pace. So he left his two friends on the trail. He pulled on his coat kind of put on his rain hood and cinched it down and, and, then, uh, and then marched off to find the campsite. And uh, he got to the campsite, he set up the tent, he started dinner, and then like an hour later, his two friends showed up and their jaws were like on the ground. They were like, we cannot believe what you did to go get us a campsite. And my friend was like, what are you talking about? And they said, well, right when you left us and started walking to the campsite, you walked by this giant grizzly bear. (laughs) And right when you got near it, it got up on its hind legs. And we thought we were going to witness a bear attack, but you didn't even flinch. You just walked straight on. And my friend was like nervously laughing at this point, you know, like, I didn't see the bear, guys. And the reality is, is that for a lot of us, you know, if, if you'd seen the bear he would have done something very different. You know, he wasn't that brave. None of us would be. He would have run like crazy or stopped and not made eye contact, all the things you do. But he didn't, and so he walked on ahead. And and my point in bringing this up is just a way into thinking about this. Have you seen your heavenly father who knows you and cares for you and loves you? And does it change the way that you live? in the day-to-day 
or like my buddy that day, is your hood on and cinched down and you just keep walking forward. Or maybe there's a middle scenario, and I think this is what Jesus is getting at, is you did see the bear, but you just kept walking. Has it made a difference in your life? So as we unpack, that's the overarching question. As we unpack this text together, we want to see just first the, the, the life of anxiety that Jesus points out in this text. And then we'll take a look at what, why that's not the life we need to live. And then we'll kind of look at what the opposite life looks like, that he paints a picture, a brief picture for us in this text. And then we'll kind of continue that in our final message in this series next week. But, but first, this, this life of anxiety. And, and I do want to say this, just a quick caveat, that I realize anxiety is an epidemic in our world and that it's, it's significant and it's severe. And I realize in a room this size with many of you here that I don't know that some of you are really wrestling with anxiety at a pretty deep level. And this passage is not meant to shame you. Jesus is the king who loves. And we read in Isaiah that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out and a bruised reed he will not break. And so if you're here today and you, you wrestle with anxiety of whatever kind, and it's just a, a real struggle, and perhaps you've gone through cognitive behavioral therapy or you're taking medication, those are all things we think God can use to address these kind of deeper medical issues around this. And I don't want you to feel that you're somehow being bludgeoned by the word of God or by Jesus. He's not that kind of king. And yet, having said that, let, let's think about it. And I, and I would say, too, most of the anxiety that we wrestle with is some kind of like higher order of needs right? And Jesus is speaking pretty directly about these basic needs, food and clothing. Now, I'm about to convince you that those still kind of gnaw at us, but, but just recognize that he's speaking about these, these basic needs that we have in life. And the main concern around these is that I get anxious that I won't have enough. And if you do think that you're, if, we, if you think that living in the kind of affluent Western society means that we're above this, just remember what happens at the supermarket before a blizzard. Or before a global pandemic. Remember March of 2020? Or before Y2K, if you want to go back even further. No, we all have, just under the surface, this kind of gnawing sense that maybe I won't have my needs met. And the need to go out and to acquire, to build, to gain, to ensure that my needs will be met. That that's a driving force. And what Jesus says in verse 29, is that that anxiety can become a way of life. And so he says in verse 29, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. And the, the, the verb that's translated there, seek, it's typically translated rightly in this way, and even in this case it can, but it can also mean to strive for. And I think that might give some better overtones here, because we think when we think of striving, that kind of serious effort and orientation, something that begins to consume our scope, our, our field of vision that begins to shape our ambitions and our goals. Do not seek or strive for what you are to eat and what you are to drink. It can become consuming. And then the question underneath this, the million dollar question is how much is enough, right? That's the title of Art Simon's 2003 book, How Much is Enough? He was the founder of Bread for the World founded in 1974. He was a Lutheran pastor, and that's a, a, a group that tries to galvanize the Christian voice to address and try to end hunger around the world. It's also the theme that how much is enough, is, can we really answer that question, is the theme of a brilliant short story by Tolstoy called How Much Land Does a Man Need, written in 1886. 
There's just no end to that question. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And Tolstoy's story shows how that acquisitiveness inside of us eventually snuffs out our lives. So it begins to consume us. And this is a common way to live. Look at verse 30 in the text. So he says, don't seek these things. And then he says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. What you are to eat and what you are to drink. And to be honest, if you're a cosmic orphan, if you really are alone, then that kind of makes sense, right? It makes sense that that would be what you'd spend your life pursuing and going after. But there's not really a way to live. And Jesus teaches us in this text that this is kind of foolish, this kind of anxiety-driven living that's seeking to acquire more. He says, you know, it doesn't, he says life is more than this. Look at verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. In other words, a life that's spent just trying to acquire to meet our needs is a life that actually misses what life really is. That's not what life is at all. The abundant life is found somewhere else. And so if you spend your life just in, in, in labor and sweat and toil to get more, to make sure that you can be secure, well, you're going to miss it. Life is more than that. And he also says, you know, this is kind of futile. It can't accomplish anything. If you look at verses 25 and 26, Jesus says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you're not able to do as small a thing as that, then why are you anxious about the rest? You can't even add an hour. We saw that in, this, in the parable last week, right? This, this rich man, his life was required of him that very night. He couldn't, he couldn't extend it by anxious worry or by acquisition, building up. No, it only takes away this kind of orientation to life. It only strips away. It impoverishes us more and more. But the real reason, and the one that's the beautiful part of this text, that this is kind of a, this is a foolish way to live. And, and I do want to point out in verse 22, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. So in the previous uh, pericope that we looked at last week, he's addressing the crowd. And of course, his disciples would be there listening. But explicitly in this text, he, it says that he said to his disciples. And so he's saying to his disciples, the real reason not to be anxious is because God provides because God cares. So verse 24, consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And that word barn, of course, connects to the bigger barns of the parable from last week. They don't have bigger barns. They don't even have a barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And then we, he continues and makes a similar argument Consider the lilies, verse 27, how they grow. They, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. If we are in Christ this morning... We are not cosmic orphans. We are not alone, left to fend for ourselves in a world of scarcity. Rather, we are children of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who live in a bountiful land of creation. Notice that Jesus 
encourages them to see the things of creation, the birds and the lilies, who live in a bountiful land that our Father has made. And our Father is lavish and generous and full of grace. We are children of God. Let's go back to verse 30. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, Jesus says, and your Father knows that you need them. Do you live every day with that sense of your Father knows your needs? He knows what you need. He knows better than you do what you need. And you can trust him. That's what it means to have faith. And Jesus gives that little kind of ouch to his disciples. Oh, you of little faith. I mean, it's a slight encouragement. There's at least a little faith, right? But there's also a little poke there. You of little faith. You're so prone, he says, to not trust. You're so prone to scamper like everybody around you. You're so prone to just keep walking even though you saw the bear. Even, you, even though you know he hovers over you. Not to attack you, but to provide for you and to care for you and to understand your needs and to meet those needs out of his lavish provision. Jesus is teaching this. Jesus is present with these people around him because of this generosity. In fact, if we go to the chapter before, you might remember Jesus teaches so passionately about the nature of our Father in Luke chapter 11 when he says to them, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. He longs to give to his children. And then he says, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds the one who knocks it will be opened what father among you if his son asks for a fish will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg will give him a scorpion if you then and here's another argument from the lesser to the greater that's what he's done in the text we look at that the lilies and the birds are lesser we are greater he says if, if he takes care of the lesser surely he'll take care of the greater and now he says here if you the lesser know how to give good gifts to your children even though you're evil even though you're filled with sin then how much more might my father the heavenly father give the holy spirit to those who ask him God isn't withholding anything from you. He's giving you, in this case, the Holy Spirit to those who ask. That is his person, his presence, and his power. What else could he withhold? What else? I mean, he's given you everything. He's giving you the whole thing. He's so lavish and generous. And if God will give you his spirit, and God will give you his son, that's Paul's argument in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also then, from the greater to the lesser, how will he not also graciously give us all things? That's the heart. That's the, that's the continental divide of the spiritual life is do you trust him? Do you know him as the God who provides? Why, the psalmist asks in Psalm 127, do you rise up early and go late to rest Eating the bread of anxious toil. Jesus would ask, why do you seek after what you will eat and what you will wear? Your father knows what you need. Or as the psalmist says, the Lord gives to his beloved sleep. Or the Lord gives to his beloved in their sleep. Do you know that? It's this logic, the reality that we have a God, a Father who knows our needs, that leads to the exhortation with which Jesus begins this entire text. Look with me at verse 22. He said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, 
Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So here we're at the central issue of the life of faith. This is the battle lines. This is the front lines. This is where the battle goes on day in and day out in our lives. Are you alone? That's what the enemy wants you to think. You're alone. Nobody cares. God doesn't know. God doesn't care. God doesn't see. So you go out and get it. You go out and make sure you got your part. We all know that voice. Every single one of us knows that voice. And we know that behind that voice is there is this underlying, just under the surface, this sense of anxiety about whether we'll be provided for. God deeply longs for us to let go and to entrust ourselves to his gracious and generous provision. Think about how the life of God begins with his people in the book of Exodus. What's the lesson from Exodus 16 and the manna? This is fundamental. This is foundational. God is teaching his people in a place of barrenness, mind you. The wilderness was barren. He's teaching them that they can rely upon his daily provision for them. And if they start to not trust and think, well, I'm just going to gather a bit more. I'm going to build a little bit of a bigger shed in my campsite and put a little bit of that manna in to make sure I've got enough for tomorrow. What happens? It just rots. It's filled with worms and stinks. No, God wants to teach us this lesson from the very beginning. This is at the heart of what it means to be related to him in a covenant relationship is you, God, are a gracious God who has miraculous power to provide for me in any place of barrenness in which I find myself today. You can provide. And I trust you. I trust you. In fact, it was this very issue, as the psalmist recounts this, as we read in Psalm 78, that provoked the wrath and anger of the Lord against his people. It was the fact that they wouldn't trust him. Think back to that psalm. It says in verse 19, they spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? That's the question, isn't it? God, can you provide for me in my situation? Can I trust you? That's the question that they were asking. Can he do this? And when the Lord heard that question, when he saw them doubting his provision and his gracious care for them, what do we read? He was full of wrath, verse 21, and a fire was kindled against Jacob and his anger rose against Israel. Why? Verse 22, because they did not believe in God or trust his saving power. God cares so deeply about this matter. God longs to be trusted God longs to be understood as the one who hovers over us with all power to provide. He can provide for his people in the wilderness miraculously by bread from heaven and water coming out of a rock. Could he not provide for us in a land of plenty with grocery stores and savings accounts and everything else that we have? Could God not, could God not provide for us too? That's the call from him. And he's inviting us to be liberated. From the anxious dread and worry. He's inviting us to lean in more and more in our lives. To, to put our lives in his hands and to trust him with our lives and all that we need. And then Jesus shows us in the final verse what that life can look like. He says instead in verse, 30, in verse 31. And that word instead is a, implies a contrast. There's a real, this is, this is going to be a big transition. A big contrast from what's come before. Well what's come before? The nations of the world live like this. Their hood is on. They're cruising in the storm. And they didn't see it. 
Not you. No, you you know me, Jesus. You know my father. You know what I've given to you. You know that I've come and, and laid my life down for you. You know that my father has held nothing back from you. That he's given everything to you. That he's called you as friends. You know that I love you. You know that I'll be faithful to the end. So not you. Instead... Instead of a life filled with anxious toil, instead, Jesus says, verse 31, seek his kingdom. Seek his kingdom. Be rich toward God. What does it mean? Seek. Again, there's that word. And I think you could say strive for his kingdom. Put your efforts into his kingdom. Be, be worried about his kingdom and his purposes and his glory and his honor and his will. Let your heart be expended in that pursuit. Seek his kingdom. You've been liberated from the need to provide for yourself. You've been liberated from the need to orient everything around what you and your family need. You've been liberated by his presence and his love. So seek his kingdom. What's his kingdom? It's this great project of restoration and healing and life that flows down like a mighty river from heaven above. It's this amazing reality that turns upside down the structures of our day and all the barriers to life and joy and peace that we put in front of us. God's kingdom is a restoration project to put the world back to rights, to undo the wrongdoing of sin and to heal and to bring life. And all Jesus is saying is, look, when you have this father as your father, you are liberated and free to give everything that you have for the sake of this great project that God has begun in the person of his son. Will you do that? Will you live like that? And then he adds, and these things will be added to you. When I first got to Boston, I I was... Spending a little bit of time one day at a coffee shop with a young woman. She was in her 20s and she didn't know Jesus and, and she didn't really have any context of the faith. And I, I, was teaching, I was teaching her about that passage in Mark 8 about Jesus when he says, look, if you want to be my disciple, then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And, and sometimes I think we hear that and we think that's for like the special forces Christians and actually, no, that's just for all of us. You know, deny yourself, take up your cross. That's what life is in his kingdom. That's what discipleship is. And I was explaining to her just the the freedom that we have then to go and spend our lives in sacrificial, self-giving love for our neighbors and for our enemies. And that's how radical this Christian thing is. And she looked across the table at me and she was just, and this was a totally serious question. She said, well, who's going to take care of you? You know, if you, if, you, if you listen to the call of Jesus in that way, who's going to take care of you? We know, right? And that's the whole heart of the faith, isn't it? Your Father in heaven knows what you need. So you can be liberated and free to live a life that is rich toward God. Do you believe that? Do you live each day knowing that that is true? Or did you see the bear and just keep walking? Changes everything. It's beautiful, too. It's an invitation to deep, full, and rich life as a beloved daughter or son of the living God.
God, I, I think we all want to say, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. Lord, we're sorry for mirroring the nations of the world. And we thank you that you are merciful and gracious to forgive. Rather than focusing, Lord, on our lack, I pray you give us the grace to focus on your abundance. To be lifting our eyes to you. Our gracious God. We love you. We do not deserve your love. We trust you. Lord, we long to seek your kingdom. In Jesus' name.